as well. Um, we are continuing on, however, in your Sermon on the Mount series. And so if you have your Bibles, um, I'm sure there's people passing Bibles around. If you need a Bible, um, maybe raise your hand or something to that effect and, and we can get one out to you. But if you have your Bibles, let's stand together. We're going to dive into continuing on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. We'll read it, um, I will pray, and then we will just dive in and unfold what the Lord has for us this morning. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray together. Lord, we hold in our hands really nothing to be able to give to you, God, unless you give it to us first. And so we thank you, Lord, that we are here in this place, right here and now, to receive all that you have for us in your word. Lord, we, we, we ask you, Father, that you would take our, our thoughts, our distractions, obligations, desires, hopes, every single thing that might be potentially a hindrance from the Holy Spirit being able to speak into our ears, and would you remove it? Open our ears, open our eyes, open our hearts to receive what you have for us today. Lord, because we know what you have for us this morning is good. It's, it's, it's pure because it comes from your voice, it comes from your word. So we thank you, Lord Jesus, that we are able now to draw our affection to you. We look to you as the author, the finisher of our faith. We declare that the church, the body of Christ, is not the hope of the world. You are the hope of the world. And we get to be a part of your great redemptive story unfolding, even into perfection, into eternity. So we thank you, God, for this morning that we get a foretaste, a sample of that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Um, there's this movie that, that I recently saw uh, with my wife, and, and we, really, we really enjoyed it. It was a movie starring Colin Firth. Do you guys know? Anybody know Colin Firth as an actor? If you don't know who Colin Firth is, just turn to your wife and ask who Colin Firth is, because they probably know who Colin Firth is. He is the quintessential Mr. Darcy, right, of Pride and Prejudice, right? Um, I, I don't want to, I don't even say, ladies, can I say an amen or something like that? Um, but th that's who he is. That, that, that's, that's I, I guess, from the perspective of looking at actors, they play such a quintessential role. And man, that guy, he is Mr. Darcy. But we're not talking about Pride and Prejudice today. We're not talking about that movie, praise the Lord. Um, what I want to share with you is maybe it's a more recent movie by Colin Firth, and it's this movie called The Railway Man. I don't know if anybody has seen this movie, The Railway Man. Um, a beautiful, beautiful movie. It's a true story, 
And it tells the story of this man whose name was Eric Lomax. He was a a 23-year-old British officer when he was captured by the Japanese at the fall of Singapore. Together with 60,000 other allied POWs and a quarter of a million Asians were forcibly recruited by the Japanese and were put to work building what is known as the notorious Burma-Siam Railway through sometimes impenetrable, disease-infested jungle. During the course of building the railway, over 83,000 people died due to sickness, due to torture, due to starvation. During Lomax's capture, they they tortured him through the breaking of his arms. They broke his hip. They forced water down his throat with a hose. Yet, he survived even to the point of of being able to be made free and returned back to uh, his country of England. And he spent afterwards the next 50 years going over the world searching for his torturers to bring them to justice. He had a desire for retribution. He had a desire for retaliation. He had a desire for justice to occur based on these 83,000 people who had died under this regime. Um, after capturing them, some of them committed suicide, some of the torturers, some were captured and tried for their crimes, and others got away. But there was one man that Lomex always had a mind in wanting to capture and extract his vengeance upon him. It was a man named Nagase Takashi. He was his own personal torturer. And in, in the film, as well in, in real life, he eventually makes contact with Nagase after the war, and he receives counseling to control his urge to hunt him down, to attack him. Lomax discovers that the man has spent his life trying to make amends over the last 50 years for his actions during the war by speaking out against that regime of the time. And Lomax eventually goes to Thailand to visit the area of the camps where he was a prisoner, and he meets his interrogator on the very railway that was being built. Reconciliation is made, and an enemy actually turns into a friend. Now, we hear a story like that, and, and we, we wonder, how, how is that even possible? Maybe we put ourselves within the narrative, and, and we ask ourselves, could I be able to do that? Recently in NBC News, there was this article about um, the Charlottesville protests and how the Ku Klux Klan was such a, was such a, a big part of, of being there. And, and, a, and one man um, who wore a, a black SS uniform because he was a neo-Nazi, he had spent seven or eight years in the Ku Klux Klan, he, he started to get heat stroke as he was doing these protests. And so he, he sought to find refuge under a parking structure. And while he's trying to cool off, a, a black woman who was doing a, a documentary came up to him and said, hey, can I just ask you some questions? She started asking him some questions about his beliefs and his worldview and his perspective. And, and afterwards, um, the one thing that he walked away with was he realized this woman was kind to me when everything that she could see visually of myself, the swastika on my chest, the Confederate flag that said white power under, on, uh, tattooed on his body, the SS insignias on his jacket, every single thing cried out, I hate you, she responded with kindness. And it led him to 
go next door to his neighbor who he knew was a black man and he was having a barbecue and he started to ask him questions about reconciliation. Little did he know that this black man was a Baptist preacher, lovingly sat him down and showed him the love of Jesus that he had never experienced before, which caused him to actually throw away every uh, uh, paraphernalia that had to do with neo-Nazis, with the Ku Klux Klan. He ended up getting his tattoos removed. And and it's a beautiful story. You can find it on NBCNews.com where it actually shows him in a white gown with the white gown of the pastor being led into the Atlantic Ocean to be baptized. And yeah, amen. You can, yeah, you can clap to that. Absolutely. And we look at that and we see that is the power of the love of Jesus Christ. That is the power of the gospel that is so tangible in these words that we're about to encounter this morning. How we can actually love our enemies with a love that they have never experienced before because we have experienced a love that before we knew Christ, we had never experienced before. A lot of the time when, I don't know, but when, when I read the Gospels, we, I just went through the Gospel of Luke with our church family and it was really, a, really a wonderful thing and, and, and such a blessing to be able to teach and preach. But um, as a pastor should do, you, you're supposed to at least read over your text before you preach it. <laughs> um, reading over the text, I kept coming to a conclusion or at least a question every time that I would read the Gospels and over and over again, I would ask Jesus, what are you doing? In the midst of this dialogue with people, in the midst of, 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 of doing these miracles that perform or, or show visually that he is God in the flesh, I, I asked Jesus, what are your motives? I've heard these stories. I've grown up in the church. I've seen the flannel boards of the Sunday school stories. And, and I know what Jesus is about to do, but in reading it in new light, I've said, what, what's your motive here? And, and it always kind of doesn't, it always stops me, and, and I'm amazed, and I wonder, what in the world are you doing, Jesus? Spitting in a man's eyes to heal him. Cursing a fig tree. Feeding 5,000. Letting a betrayer go. One who is, should be, as the world perceives, as his enemy. Stopping a potential revolution from occurring. Lord, what are you doing? Everything that he did in the Gospels, represents one grand declaration. He loves humanity. And he brings love into this world the moment he steps foot upon this earth. Everything that Jesus does in the Gospel makes a particular statement. He proclaims his authority as king over a kingdom and dominator over sin, its effects, and culminates into the absolute conquering over sin and death through his death and resurrection. When Jesus walked the earth, his miracles always pointing to his deity, his teaching always ultimately pointing to his kingship over a kingdom, and every single time he discusses and proclaims about a kingdom that is coming, it's always this invitation to whoever's listening, come be a part of it with me. This is my love for you, that you can actually be part of a kingdom that does not pass away. Part of a kingdom that will remain forever and ever and be perfect. That's the statement that Jesus makes. And so when we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, we realize even kind of te- stepping back forward in the first four chapters, we see Jesus 
beginning his ministry as an adult. And we see in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, this is the first message that he gives, at least in the course of the Gospel of Matthew. This is the first message that he gives to his people. Verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He provides, at first and foremost, an invitation. When I'm here, I'm presenting a kingdom. It's coming and it is here because I am the Messiah to usher in a new work, a new covenant of grace. And if you would only respond by repentance in verse 17, you get to be part of this eternally, not temporarily. What Jesus is proclaiming as a kingdom, he's talking about a kingdom that is unlike any other kingdom in this world. Because every kingdom in this world has an expiration date. We've seen, as we've read history, history was my favorite subject in school. I did horrible in math. I did horrible in English, everything else. But I loved the story of history. Because we see nations begin. We see empires collide. We see revolutions happen. But every single one of those revolutions, nations, empires, have an expiration date. But with Christ's kingdom, Christ offers something unique, something beautiful. And so the question that maybe some of these people are wondering in their minds as they're hearing this message of verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, they probably are asking, well, what, what does this kingdom look like? Who is this king? And who are his citizens? And isn't that the case? You can't really have a kingdom unless you have citizens under a kingdom, right? You can call yourself a king, but you're not a king unless you're ruling over a group of people. And so a kingdom, there must be citizens of that kingdom. And Jesus' whole purpose of putting on flesh and walking among us is to free humanity from the bonds of sin and give them a new citizenship in a new kingdom. He wants to see us flourish, not as the world sees flourishing, but as sons and daughters of a king. And so the question arises, I want to be part of this kingdom, so how should I live? What perspective do kingdom people have concerning the issues of this world? How tight of a grasp should we have on culture, interactions, relationships, conversations, worldviews, perspectives, if our eyes are focused on a future coming perfect kingdom? I love what the writer of Hebrews declares, and this has kind of almost been my personal motto in prayer uh, on a daily basis, that, to, to keep my perspective upon the kingdom, Hebrews 13, verse 14. For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Every single one of us in this room, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you know this is not the permanent city that you will dwell in. This is not the last city that you will live for all eternity. You actually seek a new heaven, a new earth, a new kingdom that you are a part of. And you already start becoming a citizen here and now in a world that sees you as a sojourner, as a pilgrim. And friends, this is why. This is why the Sermon on the Mount, as I'm sure you guys have been going through in such awesome ways, this is why the Sermon of the, on the Mount is so important. Jesus illuminates to his people what it means to live in a dark and dying world as people of salt and light. The Sermon on the Mount is how kingdom people live. And so this is why we find sometimes 
looking at the statements of Jesus that you guys have been going through the Sermon on the Mount, and maybe you're like me, I read those and I hear what Jesus actually demands of his people, and I think that's impossible, right? So, some, of these, some of these statements that you've heard made in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, it has been said this, but I tell you this, and you realize, I can't do that. That's seemingly impossible for me as a human to be able to do. It's seemingly impossible for me to be so countercultural to the world, out of the world's actions when they demand so much of me to actually hate my enemy, to love my neighbor. And so let's see what Jesus is sharing with us here, beginning in verse 43 and 44, as we hear another really paradigm-shifting statement that we are called to pay attention to. Verse 43 and 44. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and you shall hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I say to you, I'm going to say it again, verse 44. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. An evaluation question for all of us in our minds when we read this text is we have to ask, well, what what is an enemy? Maybe we each have a completely different viewpoint on what defines an enemy exposed to us and, and, and maybe the relationships and histories that we've had in the past. What defines an enemy to you? What defines an enemy to me? Often this world keeps a definition of an enemy as someone or something that is in direct opposition to you. Someone or something that is in direct opposition to you. But friends, that seems too broad for me, isn't there? There, There's some nuances. Life isn't that black and white. We can't just categorize people into these people are all for me and these people are all against me. These people oppose me. These people are with me. No, there's nuances. There's gray areas that we have to kind of hash out and unfold in our daily life of obligations, society, culture. I mean, we could say this. We could say as a nation, right, we have enemies that are opposed to our ideals as a democracy. Couldn't we say that? We, we could say that We, as a society, we have definitions of those who are opposed to the governing laws that make up our society, that that keep the peace, are those people our enemies. We could say that there are those in this world directly opposed to our Christian worldview and opposed to the church. Are those people our enemies? These are questions to ask. Taking it even more personally, friend, Are there those in your life who you would define to say, I know without a shadow of a doubt, I know the name in my mind right here and now, that person, he is, she is, they are, they are my enemy. When you view them in your mind's eye, when you visualize them, how do they look to you? How are they distinct in your perspective of them? I don't want to make an assumption or be speculative about every single person in here has a particular person in their mind that say, yes, they're my enemy. I would be probably as bold to say that maybe there are some of you in this room right here now that are thinking, I don't know if this applies to me. I don't really have an enemy, right? I I really try to do my best to get along with everyone and and, and seemingly all of my relationships, maybe they're not the best in the world, but they're also not the worst in the world either. 
I don't really have much of an enemy. I've heard it said, maybe you guys can say yes and amen to this, that San Luis Obispo has been considered to be one of the happiest, if not the happiest city in all of the nation. I don't think there's many enemies, maybe. Maybe you guys need some enemies. (laughs) Come down to the hood. Come to Santa Maria. I don't know. (laughs) Get a different perspective. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But friends, the scriptures still reign true. Even if we can't particularly think of a distinct person in our minds that are, oh yeah, that person is an enemy, the scriptures are still relevant and he's still approached to us and say, you have something to learn and to apply, to evaluate, to confess. Even if we have no direct opposition in our life, the scriptures still reveal a kingdom perspective that we can follow for our blessing. Bradford Littlejohn, who is a a writer and a scholar, um, he has a great blog. He's written for um, DesiringGod.org before. He says this in a recent article, which is, I thought, very relevant, at least for my teaching this morning. Um, Bradford Littlejohn was talking about the distinction between a friend and an enemy. This is how he defines an enemy. He says, what does it mean for someone to be an enemy? It means someone who I am bound to oppose and resist. Someone whose every weakness I must seek to discover. Whose every misstep I must be alert for and ready to exploit. Someone for whom I cannot afford to entertain fond feelings or show mercy, at least as long as they are an active threat. It is someone who I must assume is similarly seeking to exploit my weaknesses and those of my friends. Someone whose intentions I must always suspect, whose action I cannot afford to give the benefit of the doubt, but must rather, as a precautionary principle, always interpret them in a negative light, as an act of aggression, someone towards whom it is actually a virtue to appear paranoid. The appropriateness of these reactions increases in proportion to the level of threat There may be a place for rules of chivalry and gentlemanly warfare, but when I am under existential threat facing an enemy who will stop at nothing, I cannot afford to be naive and trusting. Friends, this is how the world looks upon an enemy. Without the vision, the scope, the perspective of us as kingdom people, this is how we will view other people. Always seeking to exploit our weaknesses always giving us reasons to be paranoid, always giving us options to take advantage of or put our defenses up so that we we are not taken advantage of. Because I look at this definition here, and I'd be happy to email it to you guys because it's kind of a long one if you're interested in it later. But I, I look at this definition, and I put that definition of enemy here in verse 44, where it says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And my only word that comes to mind is impossible. Impossible. By definition, to meet an enemy with my love is to fail. It's to fail to keep my defenses up. It's to fail to progress into success in this world. It's to fail to protect my family. It's to fail to not be vulnerable. If I say I need to love an enemy based on this definition, I have to say, I'm already done. I can't do it. It's impossible. 
Because I know something about my capacity to love. And I can speculate about your capacity to love as well. It has limitations. It does. We get impatient. We get burnt out. We wear ourselves to the point of exhaustion. And we simply can't hold up that defense anymore of having a happy smile over our faces when we encounter people that we don't particularly like or even consider an enemy. My patience, my love, they fail. And this is what Matthew is sharing with us, friends. Humanly, fleshly love can only reach so far. It can reach my neighbor. It can reach my friends. It can reach my relatives. But it cannot possibly reach my enemy. Look at the verses here, verse 46 and 47. I'm not skipping over verse 45, but I want us to look at verse 46 and 47 because this kind of gives us a visual, an example of how far our humanly love can, can actually go. It says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Jesus is making a distinction about people who are his, in his kingdom and people who are in the world. We are diametrically different as kingdom people who live in a world that is dark and is dying. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying my human capacity to love can only go as far as producing relationships that don't demand sacrifice from me. Friendships that are just easygoing right? Man, I have such so much in common with this one guy. We can just hang out. We can talk all the time. There's no problems. There's nothing. It's comfortable. It's easy. I love that guy because it's easy for me to do so. They don't demand vulnerability to the point of exposure, vulnerability and humility to the point of heartbreak. It stems solely from a a relationship of scratch my back and I'll scratch yours mentality. This is all we have ever known in a fallen world. Outside of Christ, no one has experienced a supernatural love that can actually make a declaration, I love you even though you're my enemy. Until, until, this is the beauty of the Gospels, until Jesus steps into the story. Until Jesus walks in, places himself in his narrative of redemption, he puts on flesh and he dwells among us and he says there's a better way, there's a better kingdom, and there's a better love that this world has never seen. And I am going to show you what it's all about. Jesus gives us a better love and it can only come from his salvation work on the cross. You know, I truly think in some ways, you know, the Sermon on the Mount is almost prophetic, right? Because he's kind of sharing with these people impossible demands upon them and saying, if you're going to be part of my kingdom, this is what it's all about. Yet you don't have access to it yet. I haven't died. I haven't been resurrected. Salvation isn't here. But if you just wait and watch me, you will see love that is above any other thing you've ever experienced. And so the question again for those of us that are maybe placed into this hillside, placed into the midst of this this preaching moment with Jesus, this Sermon on on the Mount, we have to ask this question, how? How Jesus? How can we give a love so strong that it reaches even to our enemies? How can can you show us the potential 
in you and in your person to reveal to me exactly what this love is all about. The, the Apostle Paul, maybe some of you might know where I'm going with this because it's such, a, it's such a, an impactful verse for us as a church. But if you would turn to the book of Romans, chapter 5. Romans 5, verses 5 through 11. It's a decent chunk of Scripture. It's going to go over two slides. But you're going to see this. This is what Jesus is talking about with love that is first exampled in his person. That only makes it capable for us if he actually comes in and dwells in us. Romans 5, verse 5 through 11. It says, And hope, hope, it it doesn't put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I just want to stop there for a moment. Just stop there. Let me read that one more time. Hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What is he saying here? The love that we are able to give is incapable of loving our enemies. We come to Christ with empty hands. And he places his love in us. And we are actually becoming the conduits, the instruments, the, as I'd be as bold to say, the Christians, the little Christs, in this world to say we have a love to herald that you have never known before. And if I can just show you through the love of Jesus, this is what I have to give you because it's been given to me. It's not mine. It's not the church's. It's his. And he gives it to us freely to be able to be embraced in and to to be comforted by. And it's all through this work of the great comforter, the Holy Spirit, as verse 5 says, who has been given to us. Now, verse 6, for while we were still weak, number one, we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Number two, so far you're ungodly and you're weak, right? Amen. Verse 7, for one, and this verse 7 is so contextual to those kind of offering verses that Jesus says about loving your brother, loving your Gentile. Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare even to die. And here's the great but God, verse 8, but God, he shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still weak, while we were still ungodly, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Making that emphatic, even if it's not in the scriptures, much more, much, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Friends, that is the how to love our enemies. The answer, the very defining characteristic of God is his love. And if it's his defining characteristic, and if you are a Christian, if you are a little Christ in a dark and dying world, your defining characteristic is therefore love. But again, it's a love that is not your own. It's a love that's been given to you. Think about that for a moment. 
The very defining characteristic of God is his love. And God has pre-existed before any other creation had been created. He stood as the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect, harmonious love with one another. You know what that tells me? That if we make a contrast between love and enemy, love has existed even way before, infinitely before, there was ever the inclusion of an enemy. Even the definition of the term, love has stood and been here under the character and personhood of God. His love existed before an enemy ever did. Before the beginning of time, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were in perfect, harmonious love with one another. A pre-existent love that had no beginning or end. And in this love, they create all of creation. They create humanity. And he says, here is your love, my children. The first Adam and the first Eve, here is my love. I've breathed life into you. I've given you all that you need. And I'm putting in you a place in this world to be fruitful, to multiply, to go forth and conquer and be a wonderful representative of me and my love in this beautiful, wonderful world. And we take that love and we reject it. We take something perfect and we say it's not good enough. We take the goodness of God, holy, perfect, pure, righteous, and we say, I don't want it. The beauty of the love of God given to us, and we say, no, I'd rather be an enemy. I'd rather have my sin. And friends, that's not the end. The beauty of the love of God is that he loves his enemies first. It doesn't stop just because we say we reject it. Just because we say we are fallen. We decide what we are going to do. I am. I am the purveyor of my own destiny. I am an island. Right? You can go to all these Tony Robbins, I don't know, motivational whatever things and make these declarative statements. But love says that's not the end. The love that I have for you, even if you're my enemy, my love still goes out towards you. It's my goodness to to you who hate me. If you give me your hate, I'm going to give you my blessing. If you give me your cursing, if you spit on my face, I'm going to pray, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. Christ himself proclaims prophetically in this sermon, I'm going to endure the ultimate abuse so that you will see without a shadow of a doubt how deep my love goes, even for enemies. C.S. Lewis, he says this in his book, The Four Loves. And I love this. I, it, it's, it's difficult for me not to tear up. But he says this. He says, God. He says, God who needs nothing. He loves into existence holy, superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. He creates the universe already foreseeing, or should we say seeing, there's really no tenses in God. He already foresees the buzzing cloud of flies around the cross. 
the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the messial nerves, the repeated incipient suffocation as the body drops, the repeated torture of back and arms as it is time after time for breath's sake hitched up. If I may dare say the biological image, God is a host who deliberately creates his own parasites causes us to be that we may exploit and take advantage of him. And therein is love. This is the diagram of love himself. He is the inventor of all loves. It begins and it ends with him. And this is why we see here, we see something that just does not seem right in this world. Look at verse 45. Doesn't this just seem wrong to you? He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And if I were to say, yes, I love my my neighbor, but I hate my enemy, I could bring that to God and say, Lord, why don't you do the same? Why don't you command justice? Why don't you only produce sun, rain, providence on good people? Why is it that I see the wicked prosper? Why is it that I see the children of the wicked have food in their mouths? They have better clothes than my children do. They seem more successful, more opportunities. And I, I, and I look at that and say, Lord, why won't you command justice upon every single person? And I realize I'm included in that category. Do I really want it? Do I really want it at the expense of his love, at the expense of his grace? Lord, verse 45 is so paradoxical to this world. Why? Because mercy is so paradoxical to this world. Love, true, supernatural, Holy Spirit given love is so paradoxical, so paradigm shifting to this world that we can look upon the wicked and see them prosper, and we can have that kingdom people perspective and say everything that they have that is good, it's the mercy of God. And everything that's going difficult for me, it's still the mercy of God, because I know that I was once an enemy of Him, and I deserve worse than anything that I've received so far up to this point. It's all because of His goodness and His love. Friends, don't you know It's even the love of God that gives you the freedom to make the decision whether to love him back in the first place. Right? That's just so mind-blowing to me. The freedom that you actually have to respond to him and say whether I'm going to love you or not love you back, it stems from his love and originates in his love anyway. Because God is God. He can really do whatever he wants to do, right? I love what the scripture says, that he does whatever he pleases. And that that provides me joy, but it also provides me a good amount of fear as well. Right? He does whatever he pleases. And he loves, as the scriptures continue on, he loves to take pleasure in his people. He loves to love on them. And he even loves to give his mercy to the wicked. So many of us, and I know as part of our Calvary Chapel movement, we have such a desire to say, Lord, come quickly. Come redeem your church. Come grab us up. We look forward to the rapture. Come collect us up. But we seem to kind of disconnect the understanding that the only reason that the rapture hasn't happened yet is because God's mercy is upon the wicked. His love is upon this world who is dark and dying. And he uses you as the catalyst of that. He uses you as a partaker of his love to give to the dark and dying 
knowing that the time is urgent. The time is short. He prayed for me first. He loved me first. He loved you first. And you know, he did the greatest damage to his enemies, not by destroying them, by by taking you and me and making us into his children. And then he takes children with empty hands and he fills it up with his love. Sends us back into the world as kingdom people, heralding a perfect kingdom, inviting enemies to come and be a part of it. If Jesus' message of the kingdom is all about invitation, guess what? Our message of the kingdom is all about invitation as well. Grace is available. And so it's coming as sort of an ending application for us. Here's a question of self-evaluation for me and for you. I've had to think this through consistently and, and, and I pray that you do too, maybe throughout the rest of this week. Just kind of think about this. You're a believer in Jesus Christ. If the love of God is in me, if the love of God is in you, then how is it pouring out of me? How is it pouring out of you? Especially to those that you would define, that I would define as an enemy. Scripture tells us that we can't know the fruits of the Holy Spirit unless we have the Holy Spirit. Also, we cannot have the love of Christ unless we have Christ. And this is the love of self-sacrifice, the love of vulnerability, the love of being exposed even with our hearts open, willing to be heartbroken so that the love of Christ might come. So in conclusion this morning, you might be here and maybe you're at this point in the sermon where you speak to yourself and say, you know what, it still feels impossible Maybe you tangibly have, visually have, a person in your mind that you know without a shadow of a doubt, they are opposed to me, they are my enemy, and I know what the Scripture says. I know what the Word of God says. It tells me I need to love them, but it still seems impossible. I know the how. I I don't know how to implement it. I don't know what to do. And, and, And I just want to pray. I just want to pray a prayer of blessing upon you guys. A word of encouragement upon you who are in this room that might be struggling in that. There's a person in your life that you just cannot disconnect them from being an enemy. Can I encourage you? The Word of God has much to say. This is our last uh, uh, scripture. If you want to turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. And we're going to use this as somewhat of a benediction. I don't know. Do you guys do benedictions here? All right. Amen. Prayer of encouragement and blessing to the people of God, to take with them into this week, to meet head-to-head with an enemy, and instead of a weapon, say, hey, here's some love. This is what the Scripture says, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3-4. to His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, So that through them, you, me, us, as the body of Christ, we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. To you, discouraged one. To you, bummed out one. To you, impenetrable one, feeling of impossibility to love your enemy. You, you need to understand something. You are a partaker of God's precious and beautiful promises. 
And in fact, it even goes way beyond this. This is mind-blowing to my fallible brain. But he actually says, I'm a partaker in his divine nature. You, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a partaker in his divine nature. How can me, so fleshly, so sinful, so knuckle-headed, obstinate, stubborn, so much more of the time, can actually look and Christ says, here, I'm giving you to be a participant, a partaker in my divine nature. And that is why you can give a love that you can't possibly give on your own. You possess a greater love than you think. You possess an opportunity of reconciliation that is greater than you think. And his sacrificial love who has saved you will continue on even through eternity. And praise God, his love continues on even in spite of our own failures, our own vulnerabilities, our own mess-ups. He's such a good, merciful God. Let's worship him and praise him now as we close in prayer together. Lord Jesus, we lift our hands up to you and we do say they are empty unless you fill them. And we thank you, God, that so much of the ministry of this church is to be in your presence here and now with the body in fellowship together and say, Lord, communally, we have empty hands. Lord, would you fill them with love? Would you strike this community with a love that has never been seen before? through us as your instruments, through us as your catalyst, through us as the partakers of your divine nature so that love could be seen in a way in San Luis Obispo that has never been seen before. That even as the world deems happiness, we could say, oh, we have something even greater. It's even more joyful, even more tangible, and may we dare even say it, even more eternal and perfect. Lord, do that, do that in our hearts, in our lives. Bless this church. Bless our pastor, Brian. Lord, give him rest. Lord, I pray that he receives and experiences just an overwhelming flow of your love as he rests, even now. Refresh us today and bless us as we go out through the rest of this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.